0: Philippians chapter 2, Lord willing, this morning we'll get through verses 16 through 30, so we'll finish uh, chapter 2. We've been going through this little letter uh, of Paul's, the book of Philippians, and we've seen, I think, one of the greatest chapters in all of the Bible. In verses 5 through 11, we saw God emptying himself becoming man, taking on the form of a bondservant, and dying the death of a slave on a cross. And I wish, honestly, that I could stay in verses 5 through 11 forever, because it's it's something that uh, I know I need every single day is to preach the gospel to my own heart. And as a Christian, I hope that we never lose sight of the fact that everything revolves and centers around the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we miss that, then we're going to go off course. And this will just become another feel-good, do-good religion where we try to perform good works. But we need the gospel at the center. And everything we're going to read today is going to still come back to those verses 5 through 11. It's what transformed Paul, Timothy, Epaphroditus... It's what changed their life. It changed their heart. It changed their mind. And so we always have to keep that at the center of everything that we're looking at. Now, when we were last together, we saw that God wants to not only change us, but he wants to use us for his glory. And how he does that is he works in us so that we can then work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But remember, it has to be him working in us first. Otherwise, it just becomes meaningless, Grudging service for the Lord and that's no fun. That's no joy. Uh, We want to serve the Lord with joy, with gladness because of who he is, because of what he's done in our life. And so he works in us and we work that out. And we saw in verse 14 what that looks like practically to do all things without complaining and disputing. And I was thinking of having Jordan make up some mugs, Calvary Chapel, Cumberland with that verse on it. Uh, It would be a great gift for Christmas, right? (laughs) It'd be a good reminder for me. I, I don't need to give it to anyone else. It'd be great for me to see that mug every morning just to remind myself of what Christ has done for me, that there's no disputing, there's no complaining as you look at the cross and you see his great sacrifice for us. And the result of being filled with God is that we would be like lights in a very dark and perverse generation, literally luminaries or stars, in a very dark sky. And wasn't that a perfect representation of what God was showing us in this passage of Scripture? That it was him who works in us, and then we work it out as we saw the star. Uh, The energy that's within that star ultimately works itself out to produce the light that we see. And the darker the sky, the brighter the light. And so there's no room for us as Christians to be condemning and, and, you know, yelling at the darkness... Rather, we just have to shed that light of Jesus Christ wherever we go. And stars aren't loud, right? You don't have to be loud uh, to be a witness for other people. It's, it, it shines its light so everyone can see. And, and what we would call this, I think, is just ministry, right? Isn't that what ministry is? It's, it's walking out your relationship with Christ so that others can see him, not, not us, There's really nothing special about us other than the one who lives inside of us, the one who we point people to. And the extent that we let Christ live in and through us will determine the impact of our lives on others. So the more we surrender to the Lord, the more opportunities, I believe, he'll open for us to share him. And so we're going to see as we finish chapter two here, what I believe to be God's uh, plan of ministry. We're going to see some powerful examples of what it looks like to be a light in a dark world, to be a witness for Christ, to be a minister, which just means a servant. Because we as Christians have all been called to be servants of the Lord. We've been called to a certain ministry. Whatever that ministry is that God has for you and for me individually. The Lord wants to use us to further his kingdom. And so we're going to see three men who God used mightily to further his kingdom. We're going to see Paul, which most of us are aware of. We've been following him a little bit as we've gone through this epistle. Also Timothy and Epaphroditus in our scripture. And one thing before we we get to our text, you know, I I was thinking about this, this light in a dark world, this star in the sky. And I I think as the church, we've kind of missed the mark on this. You know, God hasn't called us to be movie stars or to be comedians, actors, performers, or entertainers when it comes to the gospel. And I look at a lot of ministries today... And it's heartbreaking because you see what churches are doing to try to draw people in. And there's all these shows, you know, you come to a church, there's the lighting, the fog, raises, um, pastors performing crazy stunts. You know, maybe maybe you're not like me, but once in a while I'll YouTube this stuff just to see what's going on within the church. You know, and you'll see pastors coming down from, you know, the ceiling on ropes. You'll see people trying to jump over obstacles to produce some type of lesson. In fact, one pastor actually tripped on his own obstacle and fell right on his face in front of the congregation. It was a little hard to watch, to be honest with you. Um, I did see we had the little balcony there, so we could always rig something up if we had to. But by and large, many times we see the church using, using fleshly ways to attract a crowd. And, and think about the world that we live in. We live in a perverse generation. We live in a very dark society. And when all we have to offer people is that, it's like offering a, dead, a dying person a placebo. You're, you're giving them something that maybe makes them feel good for a minute, but doesn't change anything about their life. You know, it, it feels good, sure. It may make you laugh. It may make you smile. It may make you forget about life for a minute. But just like any kind of entertainment, you're just going to go right back to the same state, the same condition. And if you want to see that, in my mind, you know, that's why you go to entertainment on the outside. That's why you go to a circus to see people doing crazy things. One interesting thing that we learned last week about the star, though, is that before the star is able to produce that light, it first crushes itself inward. And from this pressure exerted, that nuclear reaction takes place, producing energy that works itself out. And isn't that God's method? There's this crushing that has to take place of ourselves. That we, in a sense, have to die so that Christ can live in and through us. And and this reminds me of one of my favorite quotes. You're going to hear me quote this from time to time because it's just that good, I think. It's, It's from one of my favorite authors, Alan Redpath. He said, when God wants to do an impossible task he takes an impossible man and he crushes him. When God wants to do an impossible task, he takes an impossible man and he crushes him. And so notice in verse 16, after Paul exhorted us that we would be these lights in a very dark world, notice what we need to hold fast to. Holding fast to the word of life. Isn't it that word of God that brings the change and transformation in and through us? I mean, it is the only word in the universe that is living and active and powerful. My words fall to the ground and wither within an hour. You will forget what I tell you for the most part within an hour of hearing a message today. And for sure, when you look at our our lives and the way that we live and generation after generation, 99% of us are going to be forgotten within a couple generations. People are not going to remember us. Our own relatives will not remember us. And certainly our words will not keep going forth. But we know the word of God endures forever. And it's living and it's active and it's powerful. And it alone is alive. And so ministry, we're going to look at this through the lens of ministry. Ministry begins, is sustained, and ends with the word of God. Everything else is meaningless when it comes to ministry if it's not of the Word of God. And when it says here that we are holding fast the Word of life, it literally means to hold forth as to offer, as if they would offer wine in those days. And the idea is this is what we have to offer the sick and dying world we have the Word of God, we have the gospel, we have good news. Have you ever seen one of the, maybe a street preacher or an evangelist getting out there into the crowds and just condemning everyone? You know, when I was a student at Penn State, I used to hate hearing people come and preach. And I was a Christian. I was a new believer. And all they were doing is condemning all the crowd that they were speaking to. But what kind of light is that? We don't need condemnation. Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but, that, but that through, the, through him the world would be saved, right? That, that ultimately it's good news and the word that we have to offer to a sick and dying people is exactly what they need. It's not the placebo that this world is offering. And so holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Now, this is Paul speaking. And we're going to see here, I believe, a couple key things about effective ministry. Uh, I believe Paul had a very effective ministry, right? He was used of God. I don't think in the ways that Paul thought he would be used. I think he thought he would be used more mightily to the Jewish people. Um, But ultimately, God used his ministry. And the first thing that we see here in this verse is that the Apostle Paul understood true accountability of ministry is always towards God. That every ministry that God entrusts us with has to be accountable to him and him alone ultimately. And if we miss this, accountability to the Lord, that one day I will give an account for the stewardship of the ministry that God's entrusted me with, if I miss that, then I believe we'll go down every man-centered rabbit trail when it comes to ministry we can find. Thus, smoke shows and light shows and everything else that we can figure out if we miss this piece of a Christ-centered, Christ-accountable ministry. The second thing I would also mention as Paul is encouraging this church is that he gives us two pictures of ministry. The first one is that of a race. Notice that he says here, he, he, he's really encouraging them, but he says that I have not run in vain. And that definitely speaks of a race, which was very common in his day. Uh, the author of Hebrews sheds a little bit of light on this when he calls it a race of endurance. right? To run the race of endurance that is set before you. In other words, it's a long-distance race. Christian ministry is a long-distance race, and I'm very thankful for that. Because if it was a sprint, if it was a short-distance race, then everything matters on how you start. Have you ever watched the Olympics and you see them there at the blocks for a sprint like 100 meters? And pretty soon they shoot the gun and someone ends up doing a false start because why? They're trying to get the best start possible because they realize if I don't get the good start, I lose the race. Thank God ministry not like that. Thank God the Christian walk's not like that, right? Because some of us, we started out a little rough. You know, I look at the first year of my walk with Christ, not very pretty. Not very ministry oriented. In fact, if it was up to that first year, I would be disqualified probably from every kind of ministry out there. Because my life was a mess. God was transforming me. And it's not a sprint, thank the Lord. It's a long-distance race. In other words, it requires endurance, especially when it comes to ministry. Don't we need to take a long-distance perspective on things? Because in ministry, things are going to happen. Difficulties are going to arise. And if we don't have that long-distance perspective, we're going to give up when things get difficult. Especially if we have a sprinter's mentality, you know. I, I ran cross-country and I remember it was so funny to watch people who had never run long distance before. Because you'd see them there at the starting line, they'd, hit, they'd get the gun off, and this person would just take off as fast as they possibly could. And everyone else is watching them like, what are they doing, you know. And by mile one, they're, they're out of gas, they're having stitches, cramps, and everything else. They, they end up quitting the race early but when you understand a long distance race you see the big picture and the perspective and you understand there are points within this race that you're not going to like very well there's uphill within certain terrains there's bad weather yet in order to get to the finish line we have to go through some of those difficulties and no doubt by this time paul has run the race he's he's you know he's gone through many many difficulties in his walk with the lord and in his ministry and yet, we see that he has this, this thing in view, a, a crown, no doubt, awaiting him, that he had not run in vain. He had not ran the race without fruit to present Christ at his coming. The second thing that we notice that he likens ministry to, I believe, is also labor. Not very fun word there. I have not run in vain or labored in vain. And that word means to labor to the point of exhaustion. Ministry is not easy. And Paul, at this point, has ran a race that he has labored intensely, no doubt spending nights in prayer, being shipwrecked, beaten, all those things that you read about in the book of Acts. His course was not a smooth course, so that he could effectively minister to other people. And so we see that it's not only a race, a long-distance race, but it's also laborious. Verse 17 Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Now, there's a little bit of uh, ambiguity about what is actually Paul referring to here. Was he referring to a pagan offering or was he referring to the Jewish Levitical offering? Um, Just to simplify it a little bit, I believe the picture Is really pointing to Paul describing himself as the drink offering on the sacrifice of their faith. And here's the picture a priest would offer an animal sacrifice, and sometimes he would offer a grain offering in which wine would be poured out onto the sanctuary. And here, Paul is pictured as this drink offering, probably referring to his imprisonment for the sake of the gospel. And his being poured out on their offering, whether it was their giving or their own suffering for the sake of the gospel, shows it's a picture of ministry, of one having our life poured out for the sake of others' faith in the Lord. It's a picture of ministry that I'd be willing to let my life be poured out, not for my own sake, but for the sake of others'. And that's what ministry is. Remember, it's God who works in us both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So that what? We can work it out so that we can serve the Lord and we can give of ourselves to the ministry. We can give of ourselves for what God has called us to. And the more we have this mindset, the more free we are to rejoice in the midst of suffering and hardship as we serve the Lord because there's there's suffering involved. There's pain involved in service and serving others. There's difficulty. You know, if you, if you liken it to a race, there are parts of our race that we just don't like, that we'd rather not run. We wish everything was just a straight, smooth path when it comes to our walk with the Lord and our ministering to the Lord. But here's what the Lord does. In the midst of our difficulties, in the midst of the uphill battles, doesn't he transform us? so that we're a more effective minister to others. See, he changes us, and some of the things that we wish weren't part of our course are the actual things that enable us to minister to others. People who've been through certain kinds of difficulties, it becomes, in a sense, a license to minister to others who've gone through similar difficulties. That's what Paul told us in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, that he's the God of all comfort. He comforts us in all our tribulation. Why? So that we can then Take that same comfort that he comforted us and, and comfort others. And so Paul is being poured out as a drink offering. In and, and Second Timothy, he's going to use this illustration again, and he realizes that at that point he's at his last leg. He's given it his all. But at this point, we don't believe that he's that far But notice, because he has this perspective, notice verse 18, for the same reason you also be glad and rejoice with me. Rejoice with me. He's in prison. He's chained to the guard. And yet he's telling them to rejoice with me. You know, whether they go through similar persecution as he's going through, he understands when you have this mindset of being a vessel poured out for the sake of others, you can rejoice no matter what comes your way. Because your life is a living sacrifice. You've already laid it there at the altar for the Lord to use. And so we now will get to our second example. Paul was our first example of what ministry can look like. Our second example is Timothy. As we read verses 19 through 24, but I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. For I have no one like minded who will sincerely care for your state, for all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. But you know his proven character, that as a son with his father he served with me in the gospel. Therefore, I hope to send him at once. As soon as I see how it goes with me. But I trust in the Lord that I myself shall also come shortly. So here's what we think is most likely happening. Paul wants to send Timothy down to the church in Philippi. After he finds out what's going to happen with him in his trial. And no doubt before he sends Timothy. We're going to see in the next paragraph. He's going to send Epaphroditus with this letter to the church in Philippi. And so Paul wants to send Timothy after Epaphroditus so that he can see how this church received this word. Are they going to heed his counsel and his instruction? They all, he also wants to let them know how his trial is going to go. Remember, he's the missionary and they're, the, they're supporting his ministry. And so no doubt he wants to wait until he sees what happens to his trial so that they can know what God's doing in Rome. In verse twenty though, we see how he describes Timothy, for I have no one like minded. Literally, it means he has not even one person who's like minded or one or, or like souled, who will sincerely care for your state. God has done such a work in Timothy at this point. That he is sold out for the gospel. He is sold out for the Lord. He is willing to lay down his life to benefit others. He understands verses 5 through 11. Timothy's been transformed up to this point to where he's willing to give at the expense of himself. He's willing to serve people without getting the pat on the back, without getting the, the, the big applause or the award. He has a like mind, a like soul to Paul. And notice he contrasts Timothy with those in verse 21, for all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. They all seek their own. It seems that none of the other believers were willing to make a long trip to Philippi because the personal cost was too great. It's not that he's saying that there aren't good believers in Rome. He's not saying that. In fact, when you read the the book of Romans, you see how many people he greets. No doubt there were believers in Rome. But when they saw the, the cost of taking this letter and also going to the church in Philippi, and they saw the cost that that would cost them individually, it was too great. And then there was only Timothy who was willing to go at such great expense to himself, you know. Didn't Jesus say the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few? Sort of a similar analogy here. Because many people use ministry for personal gain, not the things which are of Christ Jesus, not the things that matter to the Lord. The question I think we have to ask is, how do I know, though, when it comes to ministry, how do I know which camp I fall into? I want to be Timothy camp here. I want someone to say, you know what, Luke, he has a like mind to the Apostle Paul. He has a like mind to Timothy. I want that mind and that heart. But how do I know whether I fall into the Timothy camp or whether I fall into the others camp? And I believe this is the answer. When ministry involves a cross, do I abandon it or do I carry it? When ministry involves a cross, do I abandon it or do I carry it? Because true ministry causes us to die to ourselves. See, at some point when we're serving the Lord, difficulties will arise. Insults will come. People will not respond to the way that you were hoping they would respond. Don't we, you know, when we think of ministry, especially when you're early on, don't we have a tendency of romanticizing ministry? Where, you, we, you know, oh, I'm going to teach the word, and all these people are going to get saved, and everything, God's just going to move, and there's going to be revival the minute I step foot into that place, or speak to that person. We have this view of ministry that everything's just going to work out the way that it worked out in the book of Acts. And millions of souls are going to get saved, and I'm going to be the next Billy Graham, or the next Amy Carmichael. Yeah, the ministry's going to be something amazing. And when we don't get the response that we're looking for, when we don't, it doesn't happen the way that we want it to, what do we do at that point? Or when the cost becomes so great personally that it hurts, what is our response? You know, one great example of this pastor by the name of Charles Simeon lived in the 1700s. I know a different time, but yet the more things change, the more they remain the same. He was appointed a pastor of Holy Trinity Church in Cambridge on November 9th, 1783. And from the start of his pastorate, he encountered great opposition. The building that he pastored would hold 900 people, and usually it was a busy service. And on the first morning, the first sermon that he preached... Most of the congregation stayed at home in protest of him because they did not like his evangelical perspective. They did not like the fact that he wanted to see souls saved for the kingdom of God. Isn't that crazy? That a church did not want there to be revival. They did not want people to get saved. They were so stuck in their dead religion that they did not want this man to preach. And so most of them stayed home this first Sunday. But it gets better There were pew holders in that day. You know, the pews, you'd have long pews, and they would have doors on the end, and you could lock them. And I guess certain people were the pew holders. That was a big thing. That probably boosted your ego, I guess. And the pew holders actually would lock the doors of the pews to prevent visitors from sitting in the pews on Sundays. And so what did Charles Simeon do? Well, he would go and he would put benches in the, in the aisleways, and the church officers took those benches and they threw them outside into the courtyard. He decided that he wanted to have a Sunday night service to reach the lost in his community. And the officers then proceeded to lock the church doors so no one could enter. And this man, Charles Simeon, Sim, would minister at this church for 54 years, 30 of which he was not wanted or liked. <laughs> 30 years of constant opposition to what God was doing in his life and yet this man stayed the course. Incredible. I can't imagine being in that church for 30 days. You know? But his heart was to obey the Lord and to give out the word of God because he understood what is it that changes a heart. It's not us reacting in a fleshly manner. He could have taken his Bible and he could have gone home and never saw the eternal fruit that his ministry was awarded. Because when you look at church history, some of the leading evangelicals were influenced by his ministry as you further it down the line. And so all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. Nothing has changed. But you know experientially his proven character okay when it says here that 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 he has proven character it means to be put to the test and timothy's character has no doubt been tested and it's produced the character that now we witness before our eyes in other words he wasn't always like this timothy was not the timothy that we're reading about here when he first came to christ no it was a process right isn't it a process for all of us This is what we aspire to be. This is what we want our hearts to be. But but Timothy, he was saved probably on Paul's first missionary journey. And we know of his grandmother. We know of his mother. They taught him the scriptures, which made him wise for salvation. He believes on the gospel, but Paul doesn't take him with him on his first missionary journey. Rather, what does he do? He leaves him there at Lystra and Derby to fellowship in a local church. And I believe it was in the local church that Timothy began to be transformed. He began to be conformed to the image of Christ. He began to serve the Lord in ministry and use the gifts that God had given him. And we see by the time Paul makes his second missionary journey around, that the congregation referred to him as well spoken of by the brethren. That something happened that Timothy, between Paul's first missionary journey and second missionary journey, Timothy grew in the Lord, and he was a vessel for the Lord to use. And the congregation saw that. And so Paul then sees Timothy, and he understands, this guy's good for ministry. Let me take him alongside of myself and train him up. Because notice, not only do the church in Philippi know his proven character, but notice Paul's relationship to him That as a son with his father, he served me in the gospel. You see, one thing that Paul understood about ministry is you have to raise people up. That ultimately, Timothy would become like Paul. Why? Because Paul poured into Timothy. Why were they like-minded? Because he spent so much time with him. Because he watched Paul constantly labor in sharing Christ with others. And no doubt it had an effect on Timothy in his own heart. As he saw Paul loving others in the face of opposition, guess what? Timothy caught that. Because some things are taught, some things are caught when it comes to ministry. And ministry is about entrusting and equipping others because we're not going to always continue. If the Lord does not return our ministry has an expiration date. And unless we equip others to help us and walk alongside us and share in ministry with other people, our ministry will stop the day that we stop. But Paul understood that ministry, that we want the gospel to keep going forth. We want the gospel to go forth from generation to generation. It not, it's not just with one group of people. We need to share it with our kids, Right? We need to train up, raise up our children within this church. We want them to b- carry the torch after it's our time to go and be with the Lord. And so if the gospel was to continue, we better entrust it with others. Paul could only be at one place at one time. But as, he, as he's poured into Timothy, guess what? Now he can send Timothy in his place. And he can be a representative. So that whatever Timothy says, it's as if Paul would have said it himself. And I've heard it said, you know, you can, you can see the true value of a leader in that when the leader leaves, what happens? Look at Jesus after his ascension. What does he do? He, he had equipped those fishermen and those guys, rough and tumble guys, to share the gospel with the rest of the world. And when Jesus left, what did they do? They went out and they shared it. And all of us are a testimony of the apostles' obedience to Christ, of their spending time with him, of him pouring into them so that they could pour into others. And it's this multiplication that takes place. And so therefore, verse 23, I hope to send him at once, as soon as I see how it goes with me. But I trust in the Lord that I myself shall also come shortly. And so now we get to our last example of ministry before us. In verse 25, Yet I consider it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, but your messenger and the one who ministered to my need, since he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed, he was sick almost unto death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow." Therefore I send him the more eagerly that when you see him again you may rejoice and I may be less sorrowful. Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness and hold such men in esteem because for the work of Christ he came close to death, not regarding his life to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. Notice how Paul describes this man Epaphroditus to us. He describes him in verse 25 as a brother, a fellow worker, and fellow soldier. I'm especially intrigued by that last one, fellow soldier. I believe they understood they were in a spiritual battle. And both of these men, as fellow soldiers, were wounded in battle for the sake of the gospel. They were brothers in arms. They were both military in a spiritual sense. And there's a unity there as they gave their lives for the sake of the good news. And notice that he's one who ministered to Paul when Paul was in need. That word minister was used usually of a priestly service. That as Paul is there in chains, dependent upon people to provide for his needs, you have Epaphroditus traveling from Philippi, bringing him this supply that will no doubt keep him alive. And wouldn't that be a sweet, sweet sacrifice? If you were in Paul's shoes, and you see this man risking his life for your sake, and not just for your sake, for the sake of the gospel. And that was quite a trek that Epaphroditus would have had to make, you know, from Philippi to Rome, it's anywhere from 700 to 1200 miles. And that would take you anywhere from six weeks to three months, depending on how you went. And if we learn anything from Paul's ministry in the book of Acts, travel in that day was not easy, was it? You didn't hop in your jet. You didn't get on a train. You didn't get into your air-conditioned car and drive. No, it was difficult. It was dangerous. In fact, it was so difficult that somehow Epaphroditus gets sick. And it almost cost him his life. But notice in verse 26 the character of this man He was longing for them all. That's why Paul's using him to deliver this message. He had this longing in his heart for the church in Philippi. And he was distressed. Why? (laughs) Because you had heard that he was sick. Epaphroditus was distressed. And this word is such a deep word. It's only ever used besides this time here to describe Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was so distressed when he heard that Philippi had heard that he was sick that he had to let them know that he was okay. He did not want them to mourn without cause. That's how concerned he was for this church. Crazy. Most of us would just be like, Hallelujah, the Lord healed me. I'm so thank you, Lord, you healed me. And we'd stop there. But he was so worried about this church in Philippi. He had to get back to them to let them know that he was okay. He did not want them to sorrow or think that his mission was unsuccessful with the offering that they had made for Paul. For indeed, he was sick almost unto death. Okay. Literally it means that death was knocking at his door. It was right beside him as a next-door neighbor. He was at the brink of death whether it was before he got there to Rome or as he got there to Rome, something happened and he almost died. And we miss this sometimes in our society because we have such wonderful medical care today. But when you got to this place of death in in this day, most people didn't make it. He was as good as dead. And Paul's acknowledging that the Lord stepped in. It was so bad the Lord had to step in. We don't know how he did. Was there someone who used the gift of healing? Or did the Lord just bring healing upon him? We we don't know. It doesn't say. But Paul acknowledges that God had mercy. It was so difficult. But God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also. Lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Paul understood he brought this to me. If he would have died... Here this man traveled 700 to 1,200 miles to bring me this gift, and then he dies right at my feet. How difficult that would have been for Paul and how much he rejoiced in the Lord. And therefore I sent him the more eagerly that when you see him again, you may rejoice and I may be less sorrowful. Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness and hold such men in esteem because for the work of Christ he came close to death not regarding his life to supply what was lacking in your service towards me I look at these men and I think about what has ministry cost them and then I turn that around and I think what has ministry cost me Would I be willing to go to such great lengths just to see the gospel furthered as these men and countless Christians throughout church history have done? Am I willing to get out of my comfort zone? Am I willing to be spent, crushed, broken for the sake of the Lord so that he can use that beautifully crushed material to present himself to a lost and dying world? What kind of light... Would this church be in Cumberland if every one of us would go before the Lord, allow the crushing to take place, so that His light would shine in and through us? Because it wasn't these men, I I say this all the time as we look at different people in the Bible, it's not these men that are anything special, it's the Lord. It's the Lord who gave them this heart. It was the gospel. It was verses 5 through 11 that no doubt motivated this man Epaphroditus to risk his very life just to get this money to Paul. It was the gospel that caused Timothy to be truly concerned about others and not just himself, as we saw at the beginning of this chapter. That these men were able to have the mind of Christ. And guess what? That's God's desire for us. Praise the Lord. And the same Holy Spirit who worked this in these men lives in you and in me. And God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or think. Will you follow the Lord with whatever it is, the path that he's put before you? It may be difficult. Make no mistake about it. Just because it's ministry does not mean it's going to go smooth and easy and everything's just going to work out perfectly. But in the end... When you stand before your Lord, I don't want to run in vain or labor in vain. I don't want to offer the world placebos when we have a message that can save a soul for eternity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these men's lives who you use to further the gospel. We see what ministry is, Lord. We see what it's not. Father, would you forgive us of any selfish ambition or conceit, Father, when it comes to serving, would we have the mind of Christ, Lord? That's our heart's desire because we found the beauty that is in Christ. We found the glory that is in that gospel, Lord. God made low and therefore raised up higher with a name that is above every name, Lord. How we long to proclaim that name, Father. Would you empower us as witnesses, Lord, to be witnesses, both in character and in word, Lord, to be witnesses for our family, witnesses for our friends, our co-workers, our neighbors, Lord. Would you use our life that we would be a star, a light shining in a very dark world, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.